We are finishing up our study of uh, 1 Thessalonians today. I wanted to finish it before I start sabbatical this week. And so I did preach on 1 Thessalonians at the camp out. So if you missed it, uh, that's up on the website, uh, available. And then the Lord, my, my, my hope, Lord willing, uh, is that when I return in December... Uh, maybe not the first week, but uh, shortly after I return to begin Second Thessalonians uh, and see how that complements this first book uh, so beautifully. And so first, let us uh, read together chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, the end of the chapter, the end of the book. Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower falls. But this, the word of our God, is eternal and it abides forever. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let us ask God's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Father, we know that your word is good. It is perfect. It gives life. It enlightens the eyes and it renews the soul. But we also know that it can be, and it has been, abused. We know that sinful man has used your glorious word for his own sinful ends. But we want to hear your word as you want it to be heard. And that also scares us, because your word is about Jesus and his need to suffer before he entered into his glory. If we're honest, we want Jesus without the cross, we want the kingdom without the tribulation, we want comfort above character and so we ask that you crucify these desires may our greatest and our only desire be for Jesus Christ and him crucified may every word that comes from this pulpit reflect your word as you intend it would you guard my lips and open our hearts and ears that we might see Jesus we pray amen you may be seated of uh, buzzwords that seem to uh, be floating around to no end these days are self-love and self-care, 
with such shocking frequency. Uh, we look around the world today and pride is no longer something to be ashamed of. It's something to be celebrated. We idolize uh, self-determination, self-definition. So that today one of the greatest evils in our society is to argue with someone's chosen reality. In other words, we live in an age and a culture of celebrated narcissism. Where it is a virtue not a vice, to be completely, totally, and utterly self-consumed. And we wonder how we got here. But really, it shouldn't be surprising. Because, because narcissism, self-love, self-service is an easy sell. It doesn't take much. Because it's what we want to hear. It's what we do naturally. No one comes into this world uh, crucifying self and serving others. But the sad reality is that this, this culture that, that has uh, surrounded us has crept into the church. And so I hear Christians saying things like, I can't love others until I first learn to love myself. <laughs> I can't serve others until I serve myself. Gone are the days when couples uh, confess that the two become one. And so now uh, we have separate bank accounts and we have young brides and grooms being counseled not to lose themselves in marriage. And so it's not surprising that, that marriages have become competitions rather than partnerships. When whether that's the women's lib on one side refusing to sacrifice name and career and dreams and identity for her husband and her children, or the patriarchy movement on the other side that sees every decision as a battleground for authority and power and control, the repeated cry on both sides is, what about me? Years ago, a scribe walked up to Jesus and he asked him, which commandment is, is the most important of all? And I'm sure you remember Jesus' response. The most important, he said, is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And then he added this. He said, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, there is no other commandment greater than these two. And did you notice what was missing? There was no third commandment, you shall love yourself. Beloved, the great crisis in our day is not a lack of self-love and a lack of self-care, but a lack of humility, a lack of love, a lack of sacrifice, a lack of willingness to, to esteem others above ourselves and to lay down our wants, our pride, and our very lives for others. But that is the call of the Christian life. And so this morning as we look at, at the close of this beautiful letter uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians, what we want to see is this. While we await the return of Jesus, our lives as Christians are to be characterized by humility, which is sacrificial love toward God and toward others. Sacrificial love toward God and toward others. 
But to do that requires taking up our crosses and not seeking to be served, but to serve. And so as the Apostle Paul closes his letter to the the Thessalonian church, this is his focus. And it's not moralism. Moralism is doing something in order to gain a reward. Um, This is not where the letter starts. Paul is not saying, if you do all these things, you will be blessed. It's not something you get in response uh, to your obedience. And our obedience is, is, is something instead that we do in response to the gifts we have already received. In other words, this isn't where the letter starts. This is where the letter ends. Because of all the blessings we have in Jesus Christ, this is how we should live. And so as we finish our study of 1 Thessalonians, I'd like to start with those blessings. Uh, We see them clearly in verses 23 and 24. And I just want to spend a few minutes looking at how those summarize all that we've seen in this letter. And then I'd like to see from there how Paul goes on uh, and and sees these blessings as a reason why we should love God with all of our heart and soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Uh, We're going to see that in verses 16 through 22. And then at the end, I'd like to turn to how we love our neighbor and see how all of these realities lead us to love and to serve each other and, 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 and then to fill in what that love looks like. And so that's our plan to get today um, as we close out our time in this book. Um, I want to start with God's blessings because that's where the Christian life uh, begins and what it hinges on. Uh, we don't have anything that God has not first given to us. Uh, and so in other words, all obedience in the Christian life starts with God himself and what he has done in our hearts and our lives and what he has given us. And in verses 23 and 24, we have what's called a benediction. It's a blessing. Um, Paul, this is how we end our worship services. This is how the apostles tend to end their letters. Uh, They remind us of the rich blessings we have in Jesus Christ. And in that blessing, God, uh, God is called the God of peace. And that's not a thoughtless phrase. Uh, Paul opened this letter, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends his letter with the God of peace. It's clearly important because peace is, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, blessing God offers. The great mystery of the Christian life is that the holy God of heaven in whom there is no sin, no, no blemish, no spot... It's that that God against whom we have sinned offers a way of peace to the very ones who rebelled against him. Uh, in In his letter to the Romans, Paul says it this way, For while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. Uh, To be reconciled means to be given peace where there was once enmity and strife. And and he says that 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 peace, that reconciliation came at the cost of his son's life. Dying in our place, suffering our punishment, paying the debt we owed. And this is the Christian message. Peace with God 
through the death of Jesus Christ. That's the substance of our faith. That's what we believe. And and that's where we've placed our trust. And this, this is what leads us to our hope about the future, which, is, which Paul spells out in verses 23 and 24 when he says uh, that your whole spirit and soul and body would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you with faith is faithful. He will surely do it. Uh, for the last two Sundays, we focused on the confidence that we have on the last day when Jesus will return and set all things right. On that day, we're told that he will snatch those who belong to him out of the fires of judgment. And and that we do not need, because we belong to him and we belong to his day, we do not need to fear that day coming. Only be prepared for it, knowing that when it comes, we will welcome it like a friend. And so we see God's love, not just in what Jesus did at his first coming, but we will see it brought to glorious consummation when he returns on the last day. But, but even these two things do not exhaust his love for us. Not just what Jesus did at his first coming, dying for us. Not just what he will do at his second coming, uh, snatching us out of judgment and taking us home. Because God's love is continually poured out for us between his first and his second comings, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this too has been a focus in 1 Thessalonians. Knowing that that he would leave us for a time, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit into this world to comfort us and to sanctify us, to transform us, to make us holy, to make us more like Jesus. That's what sanctification means. God's love is shown by the fact that he is willing to live within us and that he will not leave us unchanged but is transforming us daily to be more like our blessed Savior. Because that's the goal of the Christian life. Conformity to Jesus. A disciple when he is fully trained is like his master. And so at the very center of the benediction in verses 23 and 24 is God's plan for us to completely sanctify us, to make us like Jesus, to make us so that when he comes on the last day, we are blameless before him. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. Peace with God, confidence for the future, and his loving presence with us each and every day, comforting us, transforming us to be more and more like him. And this is not what we hope to gain through our our obedience. This is what we already have in Jesus Christ. This is what our obedience flows out of. This is what our obedience reflects. And so I want to spend uh, some time going through the 15 or so commands that show up in our passage And see how they reflect back to God and to others the very love we have been shown in Jesus Christ. We we first want to focus on the love that we show to God. Loving Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we also want to uh, reflect that love to each other. And so that's what we're going to look at. First, uh, the love uh, love toward God. with our heart and soul and mind and strength. And and again, the change 
that God is accomplishing in us is throughout the whole person. God's grace changes our hearts and our souls, it changes our minds, and it transforms our lives so that we use our strength and our abilities to serve Him, not ourselves and not evil. And that's reflected in the commands He lists between verses 16 and 22. And the first four commands get at our hearts. And that might make some of us Reformed folk a bit uncomfortable. Uh, We sometimes don't like to talk about our hearts, but it shouldn't make us uncomfortable. It can't make us uncomfortable. Because God demands to be first, not just in our minds, but in our hearts as well. But sometimes surrendering surrendering our hearts is the hardest thing to do. The first command he gives that are about our heart is to rejoice always, verse 16. This is one of those commands uh, that bothers Christians. And it bothers us when we caricature it as uh, some command to be silly and peppy, almost oblivious to the hardships of life, you know. I just lost my leg. Isn't that great? That's not remotely close to what God is saying here. God's command here is to let His joy be with you at all times, regardless of your circumstances. In other words, He's not calling you to rejoice in your trials, but the fact that you belong to the God who will set all things right on the last day. And, or, or, or I could put it this way, it's a refusal to be defined by the darkness of the present age, but by the light that must dawn on the last day. And so you live in joy. You live in peace. Because if you really believe that that no matter how hard life is, you belong to a faithful Savior who will set all things right and call you into His presence for all eternity, joy will define you. The command to rejoice always is a command to surrender your expectations and your timing to God's. And that requires humility. The next command, pray without ceasing, scares people sometimes just as much. Because they think it means never doing anything but prayer. And who can do that? Don't sleep, don't eat, don't go to work. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that your life must be characterized by an attitude of dependence. If you see the world rightly, you must realize that you always need God, always need His love, and you always need His provision. In other words, when you think you've got this, you're deluded. And the more you see this reality, the more you will seek His help, and prayer will just be the ebb and flow of your day. I need your help here. I need your help there. If if you're never sufficient without him, you're never without prayer, is essentially what Paul's saying. So to pray without ceasing is simply a call to humility, to seeing things rightly, 
to recognizing your total and utter dependence upon God. This is an attitude of the heart. An attitude of dependence and surrender. And when this is understood, it leads you to give thanks in all circumstances. Verse 18. If you are wholly dependent upon God, you recognize that He's sustaining you each and every day. And if you recognize that, how could it not lead to gratitude? We live in an age of entitlement. Entitlement believes that you deserve more, always more, that you never are getting enough. Entitlement can only and always does lead to unquenchable bitterness. And when we understand that what we deserve is judgment and that what we've received is grace, gratitude will naturally flow. Humility will always produce gratitude. And these are the things that the Holy Spirit is producing in your heart. Joy, prayer, gratitude. The, and, and, and to reject or even to fight against these. And we do fight against them. I refuse to be joyful because I don't have what I want. I refuse to pray because I think I've got this. I refuse to be grateful because I deserve more. To refuse and to reject these things is to fight against the Holy Spirit who is at work in your heart. And so Paul finishes these with a command, do not quench the Spirit. Don't pour water on the flames of love that He is kindling in your heart. He's he's teaching you to be joyous and grateful and prayerful towards your God. And when you fight against that, you're saying, absolutely not. May the flames of the Holy Spirit be doused. But it's not just the heart. We have to love God with our mind as well. And so in verses 20 and 21, Paul turns to the mind. He says, do not despise prophecies. Uh, Prophecies are God's words sent through his messengers. All scripture is called his prophecies. We don't don't get to pick and choose which ones we'll believe and which ones we will obey. Uh, We live in an age where there are those who who claim to be Christians and they're seeking to explain away passages that they don't want to submit to. Oh, Paul, he was a chauvinist. Or or they didn't understand biology the way we do. Or, oh, these are just the opinions of men. You pick your excuse. We've all heard them. But each and every one is open rebellion against God. An attempt to subdue Him the way Adam and Eve did in the garden and a refusal to surrender your mind to Him. It's to stand in judgment over the Bible and that is the height of arrogance and self-love. This does not mean that We trust everyone who claims to speak God's words. 
There are many who claim to have words of prophecy that don't. And so verse 21 is very careful. Test all of these things against the Bible. Uh, This is what the Bereans were praised for in Acts 17. They were called noble-minded because they loved God by surrendering their minds to him. Paul, that's really interesting. Let us check what you're saying against the scriptures. Let us test these prophecies. Let us make sure they are true. That's what submitting your mind to Christ looks like. Finally, in verse 22, Paul addresses uh, the entirety of life or our strength. They are to use their strength to do what is good, not what is evil. He tells them, abstain from every form of evil. Don't use your strength, your power that God has given you to serve evil. Do it to serve good. Use it to serve God. Uh, Because if you surrender your heart and your mind to him, you must surrender your strength and your life to him as well. You must use your energy for what is good, not for what is evil. In other words, Christianity starts on the inside, the heart and the mind, but it must make its word outward into the life. You must live a changed life. And that's chiefly shown in how you treat others. And so Paul's commands uh, don't just talk about how we love God, but how we love our neighbors. Uh, because, and these two require humility, and they reflect our love for God. And so I want to look uh, now at how we love our neighbor as ourself. In verses 12 through 15 and 25 through 27. Starting with our heart and soul again. Love for our neighbors begins in our heart. So how do you love one another, our neighbors, with our hearts? The first thing to do, verse 13 says, is be at peace with one another. Because when Jesus made peace between us and God, he also made peace between us and those who belong to him. This is the goal, brotherly love, not brotherly competition. (laughs) What drives our divisions? Is it not our pride? A, a desire to be served and recognized and revered? To always be right? Peace is the fruit of love. It's the fruit of humility. When we serve others and we pray for others, when we love others, peace follows. When we love ourselves and seek ourselves and serve ourselves, strife follows. To love your brothers with your heart means being concerned about their hearts. And so look at verse 14. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. When you have a heart for others, you desire to encourage them. So much of this book has been about encouraging one another. Every time he talks about a beautiful truth, Paul turns around and says, encourage one another with this. He did it in chapter 2 and 4 and chapter 5. So much of what we need from each other is simply encouragement. Reminders of what we have in Jesus. Reminders of where we are headed. Of what we have to be grateful for. We breathe new life into each other 
when we speak God's truth to one another. The final way we love each other with our hearts is to be patient with each other. Verse 14. You ever noticed how hard patience is? Why is it? It's because we want everything on our terms and in our time, our way, our priorities. We hate waiting for people to catch up. Pride drives impatience. Uh, and, and none of us, here's the, here's the deal, none of us comes into the world or into the church fully formed. At any point in the Christian journey, there should be people who are more mature than you and less mature than you. Unless you came to the Lord like 0.5 seconds ago. We're all at different places on that journey. And patience is acknowledging this and surrendering God's timetable in the lives of others. But we also we need to encourage each other to have the heart of Christ, but we also need to encourage each other to have the mind of Christ. We need to love each other with our minds. And this is what, what Paul is getting at in verse 27 when he puts his readers under oath to read this letter to others. In other words... Don't just be content to hear God's word. It must be at the center of your relationships with your fellow believers. Not your opinions or desires or your chosen realities. Christians were originally called people of the book. Because they were defined by a dependence and submission to the Bible. We can't have the mind of Christ without the word of Christ. And so we love each other best when we humbly submit our words to God's and speak God's words to each other. Your brothers and sisters don't need your wisdom. They need God's. And so we have to strive to speak it to each other. So we love each other with our, mind, our hearts. We love each other with our minds. But we also love each other with our strength and in our lives. And there are four commands here. Starting in verses 12 and 13, the first is to respect and to esteem our leaders. <laughs> Pastor Isaac and I <laughs> didn't coordinate the reading of the law, uh, but it, God did. And, and if you think about what's going on here, it's truly profound. Because so much of what is, is going on in First Thessalonians is the people's longing for Paul, the great apostle, to come back. And Paul previously said, I sent Timothy my co-laborer, my co-worker. And, and, and Paul saw Timothy's presence with the Thessalonians as being as good as his own. He's like, you don't need me. You just need a faithful servant to bring God's word. You have Timothy, which is just as good. But did you notice what he calls the elders and the pastor and the deacons in Thessalonians, in Thessalonica, they're the co-laborers too, those who labor among you. So Paul's now saying, but you've got your pastor and you've got your elders and you've got your deacons, and that's just as good as having me or Timothy. In other words, there is no self-service here. Paul, <laughs> the apostle, 
is modeling humility by saying, as long as you have faithful servants ministering at your church, you're okay. Because those leaders are there to guide and correct you. And, and, and some see that as a bad thing, but Paul says that's, that's, that's why you should honor and respect them. Leaders aren't perfect. If, if, if they were, he wouldn't need to say pray for us and others, verse 25. <laughs> They're just fellow pilgrims on that journey who are there to call you back to the narrow path. And he says, don't chide against their labors. Embrace them. But to do that requires, I know it's going to shock you, humility. (laughs) Because what you're saying is, this world isn't about my way, my authority, my desires. And part of submitting to God is submitting to those whom he's put in authority in our lives. He then says to admonish the idle, verse 14, those who are lazy. Laziness is a sin of selfish pride. When you expect others to constantly serve you, you have made an idol out of yourself. If Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve, why would you think your calling is to be served? Christian maturity is demonstrated in a joy in serving. When you see someone take joy in serving others, what you see is the love of Christ transforming that person. The more you love God, the more you will delight in serving others because God delights in serving others. So whom should you serve? Verse 14 says, those who are weak, those who are in need. So the great question is, who are the weak? Well, if we heard what we said earlier about pray always, you realize that we are all in need, we are all weak, just in different ways. Uh, The beauty of the Christian church is recognizing all of us have needs and all of us have gifts and they're all different. And the church is at its best when we use all our gifts to meet the needs of others. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10. As each one has received a gift, use it in serving others. You have strengths and you have resources. And loving others means using your gifts to serve them, not just yourself. Every single Christian is called to serve. If you can't readily identify how you are serving your church family, there's a problem. And we'd love to help you fix that. The final command is don't repay evil for evil. Verse 15. I think Paul's addressing the the world's playbook. Fight fire with fire. Why did you yell at your brother? Because he yelled at me. (laughs) If we are not of the world, we cannot use the world's playbook. The battle for your heart and your mind and your life is fierce. And God says, overcome evil with good. And so God says, respond to anger with gentleness. Respond to contempt with kindness. Respond to vengeance with mercy. Don't repay evil with evil. 
That's how we love our neighbors. I've raced through these commands, but I, I think you hear the refrain. It's God calls us to serve, and these are just a bunch of different ways. And there are many more that can be added. But to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself pours out in humility and service. And so I want to end where I began. These aren't things we do to earn God's blessings. This is how we respond to the blessings of God. Because we already have peace in Jesus Christ. We, we have the hope of the resurrection and confidence about the last day. We have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in us where we are already the temple of the living God. And that's why we are to work hard at loving each other. These truths are brought home to us in the Lord's Supper. It shows us just how we have been loved. The bread and the wine, uh, they remind us that Jesus gave his life to make peace, to purchase us out of judgment. But it also reminds us that just as we share one loaf, as our scripture on the wall reminds us, that we have been made one body and we have peace with one another. And so we are to love each other and serve each other and seek each other's good. We are, we are to live lives of humble sacrifice for each other, even as our Savior lived for us. In the bread and wine, we see our identity, we see our hope, and we see our calling. We belong to Jesus Christ, who was crucified for us. And so we take up our crosses for each other. And our joy comes not in being served, but in serving one another to the glory of God out of gratitude for all that he has blessed us with. And so I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Isaac to come forward so that we might receive this gift this morning. Father, we thank you for sending your son into this world to make peace. That while we were your, still your enemies, Christ died to reconcile us to you. In this we know true love. And so we ask that you would teach us to love as we have been loved, to love you with all of our hearts and souls and mind and strength, and that you would teach us to love and to serve our brothers and sisters, to take more joy in serving than in being served, to have the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ, and to walk in love, in humility, to surrender our agendas, our goals, our glory to yours. For then we shall know your peace. We ask that you would accomplish all this through your spirit who dwells in us. May sanctification burn hot within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.